in the name of God, in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen. Earlier this week, I came across a blessing by Kate Bowler. She is a professor at Duke Divinity School who was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at the age of 35. Her subsequent writing and podcasts, starting with a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, call out the theological platitudes we so often tell ourselves and others in the face of hard things, even as she grapples with more fruitful understandings of faith and living well. This particular prayer is called A Blessing for Those Who Care for Strangers, and it was inspired by Kate's conversation with a friend who is a veteran nurse about her work during the pandemic. It goes like this. What a waste. That wasn't going to get you a nicer apartment. Bless those who give their health in service of patients who might not even deserve it. What if that patient took unnecessary risks or was selfish or was never going to say thank you? You could have been protecting yourself or, God forbid, sleeping through the night. Bless those who listen to long, winding stories from lonely hearts, instead of rushing off to more interesting friends. You picked boredom or patience instead of the warmth of being known. That was your time, and you're never going to get it back. Bless those who loved people who weren't grateful, the sick who endangered your health, the deeply boring who know you have things to do. Loving people can be the most meaningful thing in the world, but it can also be hard and scary and boring and disgusting or sad or anxiety-inducing with zero overtime. Thank you for all those who make these bad investments. Those acts of love that are not going to add up to success in the way the world sees it. You, my darlings, are the very definition of love. Loving people can be the most meaningful thing in the world, and I would say also the most joyful and growth-inducing and life-giving. But Bowler is right. It can also be hard and scary and boring and disgusting or sad or anxiety-inducing with zero overtime. And although this is written for people who practice a kind of public-facing love as part of their work or conviction and not necessarily personal attraction, I must say that sometimes even our most intimate and precious loving can be hard and scary, and boring, and all the rest of it. I raise this because today's text is one of those in which Jesus is again talking about love. It's so easy to see it as a nice platitude or abstraction. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, he tells the disciples and us. 
What commandment does this mean? If we dig a little, we find that the primary commandment Jesus has given them in John's gospel is love one another as I have loved you. Jesus demonstrates this in the previous chapter by washing their feet, an act of humility, embracing their mess and their neediness, their clueless, awkward, imperfect humanity. In the next chapter, he says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then he goes all the way through the shame and agony of the cross to show them the depth of his loving commitment. Most of us, thankfully, are not called to this kind of love as martyrdom. But all of us are called at times to lay aside our own comfort, our egos, our preferences, even our self-protection. Love is not necessarily heroic, but it is generous and self-giving and sometimes costly. It involves being willing to hear and see someone else as really real, as real as we ourselves, and to show up and care and respond, even when it's inconvenient and just plain hard. That's what it means. This passage occurs in the midst of the farewell discourse, Jesus' final instruction to the disciples on the night before he leaves them. In John's way of conflating the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the glory, this is both the night before his death, and it is the risen Christ who speaks about going away so that the Spirit may come. Either way, his friends are disoriented, frightened, and disconsolate. Jesus tells them that it's to their benefit that he goes, because he will send them another paraclete. This rich Greek word, paraclete, means advocate, comforter, teacher. Most literally, it means one who is called alongside, one who stands with you in all times, but especially hard times, one who accompanies you into challenging or scary situations, speaks up for you, strengthens you, gives you wisdom that you need, and most of all, lets you know that you are not alone. Someone who, as the kids say, has got you. When my daughter was a preteen, I remember interviewing potential au pairs. I was impressed by a young woman who said, describing how she hoped to relate to my girl at this complicated age, I would like her to feel that I am right next to her. I suspect that was a translation from her first language, which wasn't English. But I thought it was a lovely, illuminating way to talk about sensitive accompaniment at any age. Another association I have with the word accompaniment coming alongside, walking together, comes from the ministry of some brave souls who know that their privilege, be it from white skin or citizenship or something else, may offer protection, choose to be present as witness, advocate, and companion with more vulnerable folks 
who are threatened by government, police, or military power as they work for justice. These images, both intimate and courageous, may help us understand what Jesus is promising with the paraclete who comes alongside. This one, too, will be the divine presence, just as Jesus is the divine presence, alike but different. She will affirm what Jesus taught and did and lead the disciples and us deeper and farther into truth we cannot yet understand or bear. Our passage is dense with this new mode of presence. The paraclete indwells us. Jesus is in us. We are in Jesus. Jesus is in God, who he calls Father, the source of all. It's one of the serendipities of the lectionary that this gospel is paired with the passage from Acts in which Paul preaches in Athens to a Gentile audience. He speaks about an unknown God invoked by their own poets in whom we live and move and have our being. In other words, as one commentator also says poetically, this God is closer than our very breath and beyond the farthest star, swirling through everything, the source, substance, and sustenance of our life. Jesus tells the disciples, because I live, you will live also. God is not only life within us, but life all around us, among us and between. The energetic connective tissue and ongoing creative energy of everything. In God, we live and move and have our being. Mutual indwelling, mutual abiding, deep knowing that is relational and embodied. We are invited to step into a divine dance. The other vital insight of Paul's sermon is this, also from the Gentile poet. We, too, are his offspring. You are God's offspring. We are kindred. No one is excluded from this dance of interbeing. No one is outside God's life-giving grace. No one is outside the Spirit's advocacy. No one is outside the commandment to love. Of course, seeing much less treating each other as kin is one of the great challenges that love sometimes presents hard and scary and boring and disgusting, or sad and anxiety-inducing. Dorothy Day, who spent most of her long life in the work of solidarity and accompaniment, said, Love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. These last two weeks, I've been thinking a lot about Jordan Neely who, as most everyone knows, was strangled to death on the F train on the afternoon of May 1st. He was a 30-year-old black man who his friends say could light up a room with his dancing and his generosity and his Michael Jackson impersonations. He also struggled with serious mental illness and was experiencing homelessness. That afternoon on the train, he was crying out loudly 
He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was desperate. He was erratic, but not violent. A young white man, Daniel Perry, Penny, a former Marine, judged that Jordan was threatening. So he put him in a chokehold, which is illegal for law enforcement to do in New York, and surely far more so for a bystander. With the assistance of two other passengers, the choking continued for 15 minutes, well after Jordan Neely had lost consciousness, and he died shortly thereafter. There are so many issues raised by this horrific story. Racism is perhaps the most obvious one. The racism that made Jordan Neely seem expendable and that meant that the white man who killed him was not charged with a crime for nearly two weeks after. Racism viciously compounded with poverty and hunger and homelessness. The way that people with serious mental illness, particularly with the additional jeopardy of dark skin or poverty, are seen by the powers of our culture as frightening, as other, as worthless rather than as kindred, who, like all of us, need consistent, sensitive, quality mental health care, decent housing, community, and kindness. And without for a single moment excusing his action, I find myself wondering whether Daniel Penny had experienced some sort of trauma during his military service and went into an automatic trigger overreaction to a perceived threat. I wonder if, ironically, there is untreated PTSD in this story, too. But most of all, what I wonder is how it can be that during that excruciating 15 minutes, while the life was being squeezed out of Jordan Neely's body, nobody said anything. I wonder if the subway riders were simply shocked by the violence they were witnessing, shut down, unsure what to do, afraid maybe it was a risk to intervene. I, too, have had my share of encounters with loud, sometimes physically and verbally alarming people in the subway as well as elsewhere in our city. Yep, just like that. And sometimes I've been scared. Sometimes I've engaged them, tried to bring some resources and comfort to bear. Sometimes I quickly put distance between myself and a situation that feels beyond my capacity to help. And that may be the wisest thing to do. First, try to do no harm, especially if you're afraid. But I hope, I hope that if I had been on the F train, that afternoon. I would have recognized that Jordan Neely was in trouble not primarily because of his mental illness or his homelessness, but because he was being attacked by a fellow subway rider who decided he was a threat. I hope that I would have stood up and said, stop it! You are killing him. Stop! I don't know if those words would have made a difference. But if someone had done it, it might have broken the spell of violence and unreasoning fear. Jordan Neely might still be alive, 
He should be alive. These questions raise still more questions. How are we called to come alongside each other as neighbors, as kin, as church? What kind of community do we want to be, to build, both as a local congregation and as citizens of a larger society? It can seem terribly intractable and overwhelming. Individual actions do not solve the systemic injustices perpetrated by racism and poverty. Responding with real love to mental illness requires different priorities, both human and financial. But still, our action might keep someone alive. And in the church, my friends, we have the privilege of knowing something about belonging to each other by virtue of being God's beloved offspring, by virtue of living and moving and having our being in the divine dance along with every other living creature. We know the paraclete promises to come alongside us, and so we are called to come alongside our neighbors. We dwell in God, and God is in the work of loving, healing, and justice-making for the long haul. This difficult and life-giving work involves both personal practice and systemic change. We are called to abide in God and with each other. In the wonderful words of Gwendolyn Brooks' poem, we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Friends, there is no more urgent question than how we can live out our vocation of abiding and accompanying. Abiding and accompanying. What spiritual practices will help us sink our being more fully into the living presence of God? What will help us recognize each other as kin? What will enable our deeper solidarity and coming alongside our neighbors in need? We do not do this alone, for we are each other's business, even when it's messy, hard, and scary. But even more important, Jesus said he would not leave us orphans. <laughs>